Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. Great to be back for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. Uh, As always, there is a lot to talk about, and we're very appreciative to have you back on. Uh, Tony, we're getting good feedback about the video format, so we're going to keep going with that. Uh, And today, we're going to discuss two very important issues. Once again, it will come as no surprise as we'll be talking about the voice to parliament and some polling that has come out recently and the parallels to the Republic and how that's shaping up. And also the issue of senators and members of parliament defecting from the party uh, that they were elected to be a part of at an election and then going to do something different and whether that's good, bad or indifferent, we're going to have a chat uh, about that. Uh, So let's start with uh, the voice to parliament. Some polling that was released uh, recently shows that support for the voice on a national level has dropped from about 59% to now 53%. But of course, what matters is not the national vote, but the state vote. And uh, the support is coming off in Queensland, Western Australia and South Australia, now below 50%. So on those numbers, the voice would lose. Uh, But I think uh, from uh, from the perspective of those who are concerned about the voice, this would be encouraging. So Tony, let's just kick off uh, with the the declining support for the voice and, and to what you might attribute that to. Well, thanks, Dan. It's wonderful to be with you and our listeners As you all know, I think that this voice is a terrible idea. It's wrong in principle. It would be disastrous in practice. Uh, I can't think of anything that we are currently being called upon to do to our country that would be worse than this. But I am extremely worried about where it's going, Uh, not because uh, I'm lacking in confidence about the arguments and the justice of the no case, Uh, but because I think the government and the Prime Minister are doing everything they can to morally browbeat Australians into voting yes. Mm -hmm. And I also think that the Prime Minister and the government are trying to rig the game uh, against one side. Um, The PM keeps saying that not to vote yes is to be disrespectful and impolite to Aboriginal people. Uh, It's really a form of moral blackmail, the argument that he's using. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, even Malcolm Turnbull has come out and said to his credit that uh, we shouldn't uh, attack the motives of people who want to vote no. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said there's a good case for voting no, even though he himself has changed his mind uh, and said that uh, what was once, in his opinion, the third chamber of the parliament uh, is no longer so dangerous that it must be opposed, although uh, he has uh, continued to say, again to his credit, Uh, that this is a very, very, very big change indeed. Uh, We shouldn't think that it's no small matter. So, so look, um, the problem is uh, that the Prime Minister is effectively trying to con us into voting yes uh, by um, um, really fibbing to us uh, about what this really involves. And he's also trying... Uh, to uh, 
as it were, um, tilt the playing field mm-hmm. uh, by giving tax deductibility for yes donations uh, without tax deductibility for no donations yep. by putting tens of millions of dollars into a publicly funded campaign against misinformation, which will ultimately be uh, propaganda for the yes case. So, so I'm very worried, notwithstanding the strength of the arguments uh, against uh, this so-called voice, this activist voice, and and I, I I want to rally every Australian who believes in constitutional equality uh, to vote against this activist's voice, but I don't underestimate the difficulties in our path given the way the government is tilting the playing field against us, given the way so many woke public companies are trying to propagandise their staff uh, given the relentless campaigning of bodies like the ABC uh, and their complete unwillingness uh, to provide any airtime uh, other than in the most pejorative forms for the no case. I read an interesting piece this morning uh, from someone who I think should know better, uh, who talks about sovereignty, um, and he makes the, the point that... Uh, uh, indigenous uh, First Nations, as he calls them, never gave up sovereignty. So uh, all this is doing is uh, belatedly recognising uh, so-called First Nations sovereignty. Well, essentially, on his argument, uh, this Indigenous voice is going to be like the seventh state of Australia yeah. uh, or uh, a seventh state, which is a collection of a lot of mini-states. And, and yes, uh, I mean, in the end, this does raise these issues, who is in charge? Um, and it's almost like uh, the people who are supporting The Voice uh, want to undo the last couple of hundred years of our political and constitutional development mm. uh, and say 200-odd years later, oh, yes, uh, uh, the the three or 400 Indigenous clans and tribes that constituted, uh, that, that were present on our landmass back in 1788 need to be reconstituted uh, in some way as um, as sovereign decision-making entities. Now, uh, quite apart from the fact that it's, it's wrong to think of the Indigenous tribes and clans of 1788 as analogous to sovereign states, as were known at, even at that time, y- you just can't unscramble this egg in that way. You absolutely can't. We have to go forward as one people. Uh, we are one. Uh, as a nation. We should be one uh, as a nation. And yes, uh, we have different religions, different racial backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different ethnicity, different political opinions, all of that. Um, But there should be no privileges given to a particular entity on the ground of ethnicity or ancestry. And, And that's what this does. Yeah, it's a point well made, and I think there's an interesting analogy to the uh, the Republic referendum in 1999. Yes, there's a lot of differences in terms of the content and substance of the matter, but in the lead up to the vote, if you looked at polling, it had about 60 to 65 percent of the public said that they were in favour of it. Um, that support dwindled as time went by because you had a lot of people that were sort of open to the idea to say, yeah, look, in principle, sure. But then, you know, the details started to come out and they're like, well, hang on a minute. I'm not sure that this is what I signed up for. This is kind of what the polling at the moment to me shows for The Voice. You've basically got about a third that are a hard lock for yes. 
about 25% that look like they're a hard lock for no, and you've got this sort of soft yes vote that's declining and becoming uncertain, which is kind of what happened with the with the Republic uh, vote. So you were very active. You were a leader in that debate about keeping the monarchy. Um, can you share with us your observations based on the Republic experience? Do you think there's some similarities, or is it a completely different, uh, a completely different beast? Uh, I think I think there 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 really uh, some similarities, but a lot of differences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the Republican campaign extremely well because, as you say, Dan, I was a key participant in it. And and look, the the fundamental case uh, against becoming a republic then and now is that there are no significant problems that are going to be improved by becoming a republic mm-hmm. and there are some significant strengths that could well be weakened mm. by becoming a republic. So um, the last thing we should be doing uh, is even considering becoming a republic at this time given all the other challenges that we face. Um, in the end, there was a very clear case against the republic. Uh, Australians for constitutional monarchy of which I was part uh, basically told the Australian people that we should vote no to the politicians' republic because what a republic was going to do was uh, um, politicise that one small part of mm. our system that was and is and should always be above and beyond politics, mm. uh, party politics. Uh, so, so look, that was the case in essence against the republic and I, I think – in a sense, there's a comparable case against the voice. Australians for constitutional equality should vote no to the activist's voice. Um, It's a little more complicated in this sense, in this sense alone. Um, Most of us, probably 90% plus, uh, would be happy to recognise Indigenous people in the constitution. Yep. Only this isn't about recognition. This is about co-governance. Yeah. This is about re-establishing... 200-odd years after the event, some form of Indigenous sovereignty over Australia. That's yeah. what it's about. Yep. Uh, and in this sense, Lydia Thorpe has done us all a big favour uh, by so theatrically defecting from the Greens uh, to the Indigenous sovereignty, the black sovereignty movement. She has highlighted in flashing neon lights the fact that this is about so much more uh, than recognition. Recognition would just be, if you like, a modest way of uh, uh, completing our constitution, but this is changing our con- constitution in a dramatic way. Um, the ramifications most people haven't even begin uh, to consider. Yeah. So, 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 so. Look, they're similar and they're different. Um, I certainly think that if you can't explain it and you don't understand it, you should oppose it. Uh, if you don't. K-N-O-W, vote N-O. I certainly think that's the case. Uh, And uh, there was no doubt that uh, uh, people who were uncertain as to how the Republic should work or might work tended to vote no. And I think everyone who's uncertain about exactly what this Indigenous voice might mean and might do, well, certainly they should oppose it because any constitutional changes for keeps and you should be absolutely confident that it is going to be changed for the better and you understand exactly what it will mean uh, before you vote yes to anything of this substance. And (coughs) yes, you're right, Dan, the polls suggest that there's roughly 
uh, a third who are strongly in favour, roughly a third that are strongly against. I thought the most significant polling result recently, only 13% of respondents to a Sydney Morning Herald poll a few weeks back thought they could explain the yes, voice. Well, that's right. if you can't explain it, you certainly shouldn't be voting for it. That's right. Um, you mentioned co-governance and that reminds me of the New Zealand experience with their race-based co-governance. I mean, they've probably gone further than any other nation down this path. We've done a lot of research on the Waitangi Tribunal, uh, released it uh, earlier this week and gave a, a special briefing with Jacinta Price and um, Casey Costello, who's a, a part Maori woman who's led the debate in New Zealand. And basically in New Zealand, it started off as a purely advisory body. Yes, there's differences because they've got the Waitangi Treaty, so I understand that, and they've got reservation. They've got reserved seats for Maori, so I get that there's differences. But in terms of the Waitangi Tribunal, which Albanese has pointed to as a model for Australia, it started off purely as advisory body, but due to a series of high court interpretations, now basically has veto power over a number of major policy decisions. It's been involved in free trade agreements, for, for example. It's almost involved in everything. And I think there's a key point, which is that, look, once something is in the constitution, it's up to the high court. The government cannot limit what the high court can and cannot do. So this is one of the big issues. Exactly right. Something that is in the constitution uh, is bigger than the government. It's bigger than the parliament and it is whatever the High Court says it is. Mm. So unaccountable, unelected judges will be uh, even more central to the way daily uh, life goes on than they currently are, which is, again, one of one of the real real problems here. But, but to get back to New Zealand, uh, New Zealand's history is quite different. Yeah. Um, the Maori were much more united, much better organised, uh, than the indigenous peoples of Australia, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm not applying any moral judgments yeah, it's here. It's just a fact. It's a historical fact. And and there was a Maori king. Uh, there were Maori wars between uh, British troops uh, and 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 Maori warriors, and uh, those wars were concluded by the Treaty of Waitangi. So effectively, there was a Maori nation. Uh, that engaged with uh, with the British Crown, uh, and uh, the Treaty of Waitangi uh, was the result, and and so the Treaty of Waitangi obviously has a central place uh, in the ongoing governance structures and institutional arrangements of of, of New Zealand. Um, but you're right; there is no doubt that in recent times, under the Ardern government in particular, uh, there's been a radical evolution. Uh, away from national unity and towards Maori separatism um, uh, or indeed Maori dominance of the uh, of, of of what we used to think of as the New Zealand nation um, under Ardern there was even a move uh, uh, to keep calling the place New Zealand Aotearoa, yeah. uh, obviously preparatory to changing the name yep. uh, scrapping New Zealand and becoming Aotearoa. well um, I just think that's that's wrong. I mean, um, sure, uh, you might think that under different circumstances, history uh, might have evolved differently. Um, you might have wished it had, but in the end, we can't base our lives on wishful thinking. We've got to accept some things as real and build on them rather than try to undo what's been done and what's been settled for centuries. No, that's a good uh, a good spot to uh, end our discussion on The Voice today and we'll be returning to it, I'm sure, 
over the coming months. There's also the issue of the pamphlet and so forth, but we'll, we'll get to that next time. Um, look, you mentioned Lydia Thorpe, and I thought this is a really interesting issue, not so much for Lydia Thorpe herself, but this, uh, you know, some people would consider it to be an issue, which is uh, you have a member of parliament who's elected uh, to the Senate or to the lower house on a, on a party ticket, in this case to the Senate, uh, they don't necessarily get a lot of votes for their own name, but they're up there because, in this case, Lydia Thorpe was on the Greens ticket. Uh, then, in, again, in Lydia Thorpe's case, she's, after only nine months into the role, she said, I'm no longer in the Greens. I'm going to have my own, you know, as you say, black sovereign movement. So she's, she's essentially independent senator now, and she's got five over five years left in, in the Senate. So I thought Paul Kelly uh, recently had a very interesting article on this, uh, his opinion is that this is wrong and he would like to see changes through constitutional amendments to prohibit this from happening. Not sure I would quite go that far, but this has happened a lot. Uh, I think a lot of Australians feel uneasy about this idea that they're being taken advantage of in a way. Um, you've had a lot of experience dealing with a fairly recalcitrant crossbench when you were Prime Minister who blocked a lot of your government's very important initiatives. So I'm interested just firstly, what's your opinion on the issue of senators defecting? And secondly, you know, the role of the crossbench and, and all of these issues that come up related to that? Yeah, look, it's it's a good question. And obviously at one level, if I'm elected as a Liberal, say, and I, for whatever reason, decide that I don't want to be a Liberal, hmm. Uh, I have, um, in a sense, ripped off all the people who voted for me thinking I was one thing, if now I'm not. So mm -hmm. I, I accept that the public uh, uh, have uh, understandable anxieties about this. On the other hand, it also it, it, it does depend a, a, a bit on a bit on the issue and a bit on our understanding of the role of a, of a member of Parliament. Um, there was uh, the famous statement, and I hope I'm accurately quoting it, of Edmund Burke to the electors of Bristol, that I owe you my judgment, not my obedience. Mm -hmm. um, the idea was that uh, the Member of Parliament was to be the representative as opposed to the delegate. Um, yeah. The Member of Parliament was to exercise his or her, her own judgment about the issues, yeah. yes, on behalf of the people, yeah. but nevertheless was not being dictated to by the people. And, and I've got to say, uh, if you look at Australian history, um, one of the early distinctions between the Labor and the non-Labor side of politics was that uh, Labor members of Parliament were expected to be absolutely bound by the decisions of Labor conferences and were certainly expelled if they went against a caucus decision, whereas always on the centre-right side, we've thought that members of Parliament in, a, in, a, in exceptional circumstances have the right to do their own thing, yeah. as it were. And so I suppose what Lydia Thorpe did the other day, whatever we personally think of the merits of the decision, was an extreme form, if you like, of the right that we have traditionally recognised yeah. on the conservative side of politics for people to, in the end, exercise their own judgment rather than be bound uh, by by externalities, so to speak. So, so look, um, uh, it does depend a lot, a, a lot, uh, I guess, on the circumstances. Um, and as I say. Uh, uh, in a sense, I think Thorpe has done the country a favour by highlighting the issue 
even though obviously she's in a sense ripped off her green colleagues and and betrayed and disappointed anyone who voted for her because she was a green rather than because she was a radical environmentalist and black activist yeah. uh, indigenous activist so so i think it's a complex situation and as a constitutional conservative i am reluctant to change mm. Particularly, I'm reluctant to change something which I think on balance has worked pretty well for a long time. And I would only change if I was absolutely confident uh, that the solution uh, was better than the supposed problem, yep. uh, if it was changed for the better. And I don't think, if we're going to change our constitution, I don't think this is the most important change we should make. Mm. And so much as I... Uh, respect Paul Kelly as a commentator uh, and like him as a human being. Uh, I'm not with Paul on this. He he is drawing attention to a serious issue, but I'm not sure that his solution is uh, appropriate and fitting for the problem. I mean, some people, um, if they're going to leave their political party, uh, will do the honourable thing and resign. Uh, and seek re-election mm-hmm. um, in a different guise. Yep. Uh, for instance, David Davis, uh, uh, who's been a conservative front bencher in Britain on and off for many years, uh, at one stage uh, he had an issue with uh, some aspect of government policy and he resigned uh, and stood again um, uh, telling the people that he believed very strongly in a certain civil libertarian Perspective, and he got re-elected. Yep. But but that was, if you like, an example uh, of a, of a, of, a, of an honourable member of parliament uh, wishing to go back to the people when there had been some significant change. There was a fella. Um, I'm just trying to remember his name. Uh, he was the only uh, uh, Brexit party, I think, or UKIP uh, uh, member of the House of Commons who was elected as a as a as a, as a conservative. Uh, I think moved to either the Brexit Party or UKIP, whichever it was at the time, uh, and he resigned and recontested his seat yep. uh, and got and got yep. elected. So that's, if you like, the very honourable thing. Yep. Winston Churchill, if we're going back in time, Winston Churchill changed parties a couple of times. Mm, yep. uh, he was elected as a Conservative. Uh, he became uh, a Liberal. He then rejoined the Conservatives. Uh, now, he was also out of Parliament a couple of times yes. as well. Yep. But nevertheless, he certainly changed his party twice. And um, it uh, at the time, it didn't help his reputation no. as a man of honour and a man of consistency. But nevertheless, uh, from the vantage point of all the subsequent history, we would say he was an absolute giant yes. uh, and a person who was utterly consistent on the big things, yep. even if on the in these terms, smaller things of of, of party loyalty, yeah. he might have changed a bit. Well, I mean, I think I think Churchill would probably say he was consistent in the sense that he, at least from his perspective, he was always trying to do what was right for the empire. That exactly. would be his. We can debate, but that would be his his perspective. Ex- ex- and I think exa- exactly right. He believed in Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, capital G, capital R, capital E, capital A, capital T. Great Britain, and. Uh, uh, he uh, he believed that uh, no country on earth had made a greater contribution to the modern world. Um, 
I think there's something to be said for that position, uh, even now, and uh, good on him because uh, uh, he certainly gave the British line its roar yes. at an incredibly important time in our history. He did, he did. Uh, so just want to round this out, talking about the crossbench a bit more. Like my, my perspective on the Senate crossbench and having sort of third parties or independents, I've typically been – I've typically thought that's – a good thing overall. I've often been concerned about the sort of the two-party system in Australia and that it's hard to get a third party up and running because of our compulsory third party, uh, our compulsory preferential voting system means basically getting a, a European style lower house where you have you know, a range of viable parties is not possible. Uh, look, there's arguments for and against that, but then I sort of look at the Senate and say, well, maybe this is a conduit where people can sort of give expression to their particular political interests in a way that they can't in the lower house. So I've typically been thought having a crossbench on balance is a good thing. My views on that are starting to change when you look at who's on the crossbench. Uh, you've got the Greens, Lydia Thorpe and David Pocock, who now basically essentially have enormous control over the direction of Australia. As I mentioned before, you had to deal with a recalcitrant, a recalcitrant crossbench that blocked a lot of important initiatives such as repealing the lawfare provision, Section 487, among many others. I just wanted you to give us an insight into the workings of the Senate and the crossbench and does the Senate need reform? Um, just give us an overview of, of how it works there. Okay. Well, traditionally, traditionally, the government in a Westminster system uh, controlled the parliament so the executive government could count on getting its legislation through the parliament. Compare that with uh, the Washington system mm. where the president could never be confident uh, of getting his legislation through the, par through the Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, there always had to be a series of trade-offs and vote buying, etc. cetera. Yep. Um, and traditionally uh, it was thought that um, Anglo-Australian government was stronger, uh, certainly domestically, than American-style government because while the president uh, had executive powers in foreign policy, uh, he certainly uh, lacked control, automatic control of the Congress and therefore was much less influential in domestic policy. Yep. Uh, the reality in Australia more recently is that the executive hasn't controlled the parliament because our parliament is not just the House of Representatives. Our parliament is the House of Representatives and the Senate. Yeah. And legislation uh, must pass both houses. Uh, in Britain, in the end, uh, the Lords cannot block legislation. But in Australia, yes, the Senate absolutely can and yeah, does yeah, yeah, yeah. block legislation. Now, uh, I am instinctively someone who wants to see strong government, not weak government. I am instinctively someone who thinks that you elect a government for the relevant term, three or four years, whatever it is. Now, no government is perfect. Even the best government will sometimes make mistakes. Uh, parliament is a place where members should be able to point out quite freely the errors that they think the government is making. And I've got no problem with uh, an upper house as a house of review. Mm. I do have a problem with the upper house as a house of obstruction. And, and 
for governments of the centre-right, uh, the Australian Senate in recent times has very much been a house of obstruction, not a house of review. For governments of the centre-left, uh, I think it has been a house of review. And this is because um, the crossbench has tended to be populist, if not leftist. Um, the crossbench has tended to be in favour uh, of measures that increase spending, increase regulation, increase taxes on the so-called rich, but against measures that reduce spending, that reduce regulation or reduce taxes on our most productive and enterprising people. Mm. And, and so I think that the way things have worked, the current combination of political culture, zeitgeist and institutional arrangements has been friendlier uh, to strong government of the left yep. than it has been to strong government uh, of, of the right. And this is why some years ago um, I put forward a proposal uh, to allow uh, joint sittings without a double dissolution election uh, if uh, legislation were blocked um, uh, six, you know, twice yep. within six months. Yep. Um, now, it was a proposal I put forward as a suggestion. I suppose really what I was trying to do was to highlight the fact that the former coalition government was in office but not really in power yep. because of the difficulty we had getting our measures through the parliament. I mean, look at the problems of the 2014 budget, had, yeah. for instance, the last attempt at serious economic reform in our country. And at the moment, uh, I think that the Senate, as it's currently composed, is uh, is something that it's much easier for governments of the left than governments of the right to work with. Yeah, and of course, there's also the the fact that the the Senate in Australia was meant to be a state house. You know, something that represents first and foremost the interests. And of, it's never been that. And it's never been. And I never think that's that. um, that's a problem because. If it were the case that the senators were there to represent the interests of the states, not the interests of a party, I think we'd have a very different situation and I think we'd probably have a more decentralised nation as opposed to having a lot of power built up in the major cities. Do you think there's any merit in the – like I have no idea how you do this in a practical sense. You but couldn't just do in it practically. I, I mean uh, senators represent uh, – they might represent the state, but yep. they're elected via a political party. And if yeah. it's a national political party, you'd have to have state-based political parties in order yes. to have the Senate being uh, really a state's house as opposed to a simply another yeah. another political house. Yeah, okay. So it's one of those things we're stuck with and we've got to deal with I, as best I, we can. I, I, think, I think that's right. <laughs> I, I mean, look, we live, we live in an imperfect world uh, and the challenge uh, is to make the most of it uh, and only to change the things that we feasibly can change as opposed to bay at the moon. Yeah. No, sounds good, Tony, and I reckon, the, as you say, changing the, the constitution uh, should only be reserved to areas where we can be sure that there's going to be on balance a positive outcome, unlike what's being put forward to us now with the voice to parliament. So, Tony, uh, I reckon we leave it there for today. Thanks again for your, your time and your analysis. Uh, really appreciate it and we'll keep on chatting over the coming weeks particularly about the voice to parliament because it's only going to get hotter thanks dan this is a production of the center for the australian way of life at the institute of public affairs to find out more visit australia.ipa.org.au